everyone come on in. Um, we have a treat for everyone tonight. Um, just a small talk here, just a minute, Aaron, just hang on, let people come on into the room. Um, I want to, the first thing I want to talk about tonight is the, everything that goes on behind the scenes that nobody knows. My daughter, Rachel does all this and she just does a <laughs> tremendous job. And I want to thank her and I want to thank my wife, Carol, and my son-in-law, Eric, uh, my, my other daughter, Jessica, and her husband, Michael. It's the family support for everything we do is just huge. And it's so important to have the support of those, those family members. And I couldn't be more thankful for the family that I have. So I want to start there. And then tonight we are in for a real treat. Uh, we have Dr. Aaron Silva with us. And I, I, I gotta tell a story before we get going here, Aaron. First of all, how, how are you doing tonight, Aaron? I am doing great. It's a beautiful night here in Wisconsin. Good, good. I wanna tell a story before we get started here. Um, I don't remember timelines very well. So we're just gonna talk about in the past. I saw this ad for this professor at the University of Wisconsin that was gonna teach farmers how to plant soybeans in the boot stage cereal rye. And then about 40 days later, an thesis, we were gonna roll everything down with the, with the roller crimper. And I said, you're gonna do what? I'll be there. <laughs> and myself and 35 or 40 other farmers showed up. That's where I met Lauren Steinlogge for the first time uh, in person. Uh, Dr. Aaron Silva, who's our guest this evening, had this, this two-day event on, and she taught us how to do these things. And folks, this is, this is what got me the notion to roll on into, forget, excuse the pun there, but roll in, on into organic with no tillage. It was because of this concept. So... I owe everything here to, to this lady right here about this. So Aaron, thank, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Oh, you're, you're giving me too much credit. No, no, <laughs> thank you. no, now, now, Aaron, you know, it's, it's what I do every time. Giddy up, let's go. Now, Aaron, what, what is on your mind right now? Oh, so tomorrow, um, for the first time uh, since 2019, I um, am getting on a plane and leaving the country. So I'm a bit wow. nervous about about doing some international travel again. Um, oh, so wow. I need to get packed and get things set up uh, in the house so I can leave for 10 days. So looking forward to it, but a bit nervous as well. Uh, it'll be fine. And I'm so glad you could take time to be with us this evening. Um, and I'll tell you what, let, I want to go, I, this, I want to, here's the first place I want to go. I saw that Cliff Bar gave a million dollars and they so graciously gave you the endowed chair in organic agriculture and outreach. This is awesome. And I think if I also read this correctly, there's an opportunity. Is it for UW to match or, or anybody to match? 
Oh, UW is already, um, it's actually the um, mortgages that um, have been wonderful donors um, to support UW-Madison in a broad range of activities have already matched the gift. So um, oh, that nice. that is, um, yes, yeah, yeah. So it's been a really generous gift to support all the organic work really that we're doing at UW-Madison. It's really a team effort of uh, a lot of different research um, programs, not only my own that is a bit more focused on agronomics, but we have incredible work trying to understand um, how the soil microbiome interacts with organic crops. How can we breed organic crops to better uh, work with the soil microbiome so that we can better facilitate nutrient cycling and competitiveness in these high residue environments and cover crop based environments. Um, colleagues that are uh, you know, working in um, understanding how to do ecological weed management. So we just it's have a great team of people here that are really taking a systems based approach not only the using the tools that we currently have, but looking at what are the tools that we need in the future, um, both with genetics and equipment and technology to bring organic um, and organic or regenerative organic to the next level. Yeah, well, let's, you said quite a bit there. Well, I wanna, I wanna, <laughs> I wanna slice some of this up now. The one thing that really caught my attention there was ecological weed management. Can you please explain more of what you mean by that? Yeah, so instead of being reactionary to, with our weeds and uh, thinking of you know what do we do after the weeds emerged, really trying to understand more about what is it about our system that's uh, causing certain weed species to become abundant in such a way that they become problematic. So they're really trying to understand the system um, and how we sequence crops, uh, you know, what are the different um, growth habits or characteristics of crops that facilitate certain weeds um, that again, becoming problematic, or what is it about the soil uh, that is um, causing certain weed populations to um, you know, not, not be managed the way that we want to manage them. So it's, it's really trying to understand the ecology and being proactive with the way that we farm versus being reactive. Yeah, I absolutely love that. So is this, um... Is this database that you're building, is this public information? I mean, can we take, uh, if we have an, uh, an environment that's low in calcium uh, uptake, that's then gonna result in taproot type weeds? I mean, I mean, do you have that kind of information for us? That's our goal. And our goal is to really create these large databases that we are able to discern these patterns. Um, which is the challenge with these you know, regenerative ecological systems is it's um, they're extremely complex and they play out differently across different environments. So this is where we need, really need to have this network and community of farmers that are being willing to, to share information uh, so that we can start to understand how all these different pieces fit together, our soil biology and our fertility management and the diversity of crops we grow um, and cover crops we grow too, and how that all 
works together. The, the more data we have, the more we can start to see these patterns and trends. And that's that's really what's going to help us understand uh, what is what's happening and and how do we do how do we farm to strategically um, uh, manage and not not overcome or control, but but work with Mother Nature to to manage in a way that helps us reach our goals. Right. So now, okay, let me let me ask you another question. Now, so uh, I, I'm assuming. I think I know the answer to the first question. You're you're doing soybeans with no tillage, correct? Yes. Are you doing corn with no tillage? We are making progress. Uh, corn it's hard. has oh it's God. hard. Oh. It's tricky, and there's there's. Um, Corn, corn is a lot less forgiving than soybeans, um, and there's there's complexities there that uh, I, I think we need to um, you know, really understand a bit deeper to be able to fine tune our management and and also again through crop breeding and crop genetics look at how we might select for these specific environments. I just had a colleague in the um, Department of Agronomy who's a weed scientist. He just forwarded me two papers about some work that they had done, um, gosh, over a decade ago, looking at the impacts of red to far red light ratios on corn growth. And they were looking at it in the time in the context of how you know, heavy weed pressure impacted corn growth. Yeah. But when we think about cover crops, um, in a way, we can think of cover crops almost as managed weeds. I mean, there, there's there another crop that we're growing that potentially could be competitive uh, with our corn crop, depending on what we're choosing as cover crop species and how we're managing. Um, but the way that um, you know we've looked at developing and selecting corn varieties, we've we've been selecting in environments where those the, the corn has been grown and on bare soil. Um, and we're just starting to understand how the, the green um, cover of the cover crops or in weed species are potentially changing the way that the corn plant is allocating resources above and below ground, um, which may be some of the challenges that we're seeing with these systems in terms of developing uh, strong root systems and be able to be competitive. Um, so there's there's just so much about the corn system that I, I'm confident that we can get there. Um, there's a lot of smart people, um, including many of the farmers like yourself that are working on this and plant breeders and um, agronomists. So I, I, I'm confident that we're gonna be able to get there, but, but gosh, it's been a, a journey to try to understand how to make this work. Well, uh, I'm going to tell you what I've, in my little short stand of about five years now, I'm trying to do this. The corn, when you put the corn in that environment, it has no resilience to anything. Mm -hmm. Any one bad day and it folds pretty much. So that's not good. So mm -hmm. we're trying to build systems that become resilient to, to the surroundings but yet the, the corn just says, I, I'm not doing this today. I, I'm not doing it. So now that leads me into the next question then. And, and I'm going to tell you, Aaron, I, 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 I think I'm just about here on corn. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have to use some tillage. So let's talk about this. First of all, is, 
if we're in a rotation that we're growing corn once every four years on an acre, is going in and doing some, some disturbance with, with tillage okay? That's the first question. And the second question is, if so, what kind of tillage would you prefer and what depth? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's from the long-term trials that I've, I've seen. I mean, this is a case too, where there's not a one size fits all answer. And certainly, you know, as we look at our um, environment across the country, uh, anywhere from the Corn Belt to the upper Midwest to the drier, arid regions right. of the Great Plains, um, there's going to be different risks of, of tillage. Um, I, I know one of the concerns of organic and regenerative farmers is, is often the um, impact on soil biology. And from what I've seen with long-term studies, if, if we're treating our soils well um, in all other respects. Um, and a lot of that is you know, re recognizing the soil as a living environment and feeding that soil um, you know, diverse foodstocks through diverse cover crops, a diverse crop rotation, keeping living roots in the soil, all those five soil health principles that we hear about that really are, are looking at giving soil life what it needs to thrive, um, both with respect to its food source and its housing. Um, so a place to live, a good place to live, um, and, and good food to eat, good nutrition. Then we, then the, the soil can rebound, um, both with respect to soil bacteria as well as, as soil um, fungal populations. So again, that's, uh, I think regenerative farmers and organic farmers are very aware of the importance of soil biology, and that's often their primary concern. Yeah. Uh, you know, depending on where you are, I mean, there's certainly other risks of, of tillage um, and hillier areas, risks of water erosion. Sure. And we've seen some really, um, you know, incredible um, photos from the Dakotas this year of, of wind erosion. Wind. Oh, so I, I don't want to dismiss the other risks of um, the impact of bare soil and, and keeping that soil uh, in place. Um, but I, I, th I think we can be smart and strategic in terms of how we do it, minimizing the amount of time that that soil's bare. I know Gary Zimmer has been a, a, a present presenter at many of our conferences and he shows um, just incredible photos of just the shallow tillage that he does um, where he's incorporating cover crops into the soil. And even with that tillage, there's a there's armor there there's protection there because he's not moldboard plowing he's not inverting the soil um he's he's tilling in a a really um dense stand of legume so the amount of food the nutrition that's going back into that that soil i i, I do think that there's ways I'm, I'm confident there's ways that we can utilize tillage in ways that are smart and still uh you know building building our systems in positive ways and there's also um you know looking at some of these other management techniques and and that challenge of potentially having green under the corn crop and one technique that we're using is is more of a strip till technique and again when you look at the risks if you have some green cover interspersed throughout the field that's going to help um, mitigate the impacts of water and wind erosion and keep um, you know the food in the soil to help those mycorrhizal fungi populations 
So I, I, I think we can't think in, in black and white terms. There's, there's degrees of how we might think about managing um, and you know, some of the tools that we have with inter-row mowers and crimpers. But I agree. I, I think at, at you know, where we are, unfortunately, at, at the cover crop species we have available and the cash crop species we have available, uh, that that tillage tool is is still um, I think going to be needed um, in some circumstances. Yeah, I I'm gonna I'm gonna tend to agree with you on that. Um, you know, and I'm you know, I'm always trying to think about how can we do this without tillage. So you know, I'm I'm not gonna look at alfalfa for a minute. I'm gonna look at at that. Let's say we had a a um, a balanza uh, uh, clover and a hairy vetch grow, and maybe even a pea. Let's say we had those three that survived the winter and they're out there growing this spring. It's May 20th. You're looking at 12,000 pounds biomass. It's ready to, you know, it's ready to rock. Now, I'm not saying we go, we drop in and we drop four inches deep and we, and let's go. How about we just run right at the ground? and mm -hmm. just slice this stuff into pieces and start that breaking down process and then maybe wait two days and come back in and then no till right into that what do you think about that maybe you've yeah. done it. i have not done that um one of the challenges we have with corn um is is finding those cover crops where we we can um have have the crop terminated and i think this might be one of those dynamics again of of can we grow corn with a green living cover or do we need a mat how do we terminate that in a way that is um meets um the the planting date of corn and how does this all sequence together the other um thing that we're continuing to to research more in this model of having a killed cover crop similar to the soybean rye system is trying to manage the system in a way that um, we have um, the, the nutrient release is, is more synchronized with the corn nutrient demand. Yeah. And again, that's something that might be addressed as we look at breeding specifically before these environments into the future. But with the corn varieties we have now, uh, there, there definitely seems to be issues with nutrients being tied up at critical points of, of corn growth. So we are um, you know, continuing to try to understand what are the rates of supplemental nitrogen we, we do need. Ultimately, we'd love to get to a system where our soil biology and our cycling organic matter is contributing all the nutrients in the system and we really have a closed system. But as we look at building towards there, we still are having to uh, apply some nutrients at a you know, reduced rate, but some nutrients. Right. So in part of what we're doing this year is actually not on organic fields, but on um, fields that aren't certified, seeing if it's a factor of organic sources not being able to supply enough nitrogen. So trying to, with our abilities to um, you know, do some different things, uh, understand, you know, where are the bottlenecks in the system and the limitations, but, you know, the two, um, the, the two big ones seem to be this, this competition um, that 
that kind of wimpiness of the corn that you described earlier and its inability to, to withstand any stress yeah. that you throw at it when you put them in these systems. And then the, the issue with nutrient tie up. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I try to be, I try to be full disclosure, transparency. I'm going to do it right now. I mean, we are going to lose 180 acres of corn that I, that we no-tilled into alfalfa did our normal regime rolled it down and here we are in this mini drought and now i've always said if, if you do this this is like suicide because i'm you're talking about planting a, an annual or i mean a, 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 a grass corn into a established perennial alfalfa and you're asking for trouble and we're going to get burned we are this this uh four weeks of 95 plus weather and no rain is 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 done the corn's done so that's not that's not good we cannot do that on a large type scale mm -hmm. um so it just it just goes back to that the corn just cannot take the competition of anything and and alfalfa is pretty rigorous because you know it will kill itself if, if you reseed young ones into it so it's yeah. got something going on there yeah. Yeah. We, we haven't done a lot of work with alfalfa and corn. Our system has been more looking at kind of a relay system of, um, so we have an extended period of no tillage where we're doing, um, usually a, a fall seeded cereal grain, or we could do an oat if we did a spring seeded cereal grain and then frost seeding red clover into that. So that's no tilling essentially red clover into a cereal grain and then using that red clover as our legume. Um, and how do you which, terminate that red clover? We don't. Um, so we've, we've been trying to suppress it either through mowing or crimping, um, but we also are doing some strip tillage there uh, and some undercutting as well. So looking at, once the corn gets established and sets that root system down, it sounds like, and I just, I, I just was reading about your drought today. I hadn't realized how dry you guys were. We came into the season really dry, but we've, we've been pretty good where, where we are. Um, but yeah, it sounds like you guys have been hit hard with the temperatures yeah. and the, the weather, um, which is really kind of, you know, the worst stage, unfortunately, where you are now, because that corn where it's, it's, it really struggles with any competition right. and not having a chance to put that root system down down um that alfalfa is going to just take all the, the the water from the corn yeah. um and we have in this system yeah we've our yields have been boy um i want to say probably on the higher end of average about 120 bushels per acre which we are getting corn, um, but our, our yields in our more typical systems have been closer to 180 or 200. So um, yeah, we, we have work to do there, but we are, we have a, a nugget of success, I guess, that we're hoping that if we can understand, um, again, some of the other optimization of, of management, but yeah, that water stress, some of the best organic no-till fields that I've I've seen photos of, I haven't seen them in person yet, have actually been in Nebraska where they have a bit of a longer growing season and it's been under irrigated center pivots. And oh. with that water there, boy, <laughs> um, they can make things work that we can't when we're at the mercy of, of uh, timely rainfalls. 
Yeah, that, and that's true. And I, you know, a pivot may have saved this corn. I'm sure it would have. And then I, I, I would have probably done some different management decisions. You know, we may have gone in with the Romo and mm-hmm. tried to give it some relief. But I've been watching the corn. There's no point. We have yeah. no rain in the forecast for three weeks, and we're in the 90s, and there's no point. So it's time to move on and and do something else with those fields. That's fine. But we have to come up with this uh, with a system that's going to work at least in the Midwest, you know. I mean, I don't know if we can come up with one that work it, that it, that it works in in Wisconsin and Indiana and will also work in western Kansas. That I don't know. I doubt it. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think it's it's, it's there's going to be some regional specificity because yeah. of Yeah. And, and, and honestly, Aaron, aren't, I still think that we haven't found the right species yet. I think that's what a lot of this boils down to. But the other thing, too, that we got to remember, I think, you know, it, it's because when you get to the end of the season and you're running out of time, you only have really one thing to go to, and that's cereal rye. Yeah. It's really all that's left. And, and I think especially for me and this farm, I think we've, we've relied on that a little too much. Mm-hmm. And I think our carbon to nitrogen ratios are way too high. Yeah. And that could be, you know, let's talk about that. Tell me what you, th- what, what would you say to that? Yeah. And I, I, I think there's two things that have had us have a strong reliance on on cereal rye, um, and and one is certainly um, you know his ability to be planted relatively late, and even that in these organic no-till systems, when I, I see these systems fail, it's typically because uh, even with cereal rye, we need to plant it pretty early, relatively speaking. Oh. And in Wisconsin, that could be as early as typically not as early as late August, but definitely towards the middle part of September. So even there, it's not so forgiving. But where where cereal rye also really helps, I think, is um, in the spring, the the legumes that are kind of our typical go-to legumes for for roller crimping anyway, um, like hairy vetch, which can put on a tremendous amount of biomass. It's it's doesn't necessarily put on a lot of ground cover in the fall or in the early spring. So I think that cereal rye really helps both with respect to the right. number of plants in a, a area as well as allelopathy um, to help mitigate um, some of those earlier weeds from popping through. Um, you know, so hairy vetch can be phenomenal, um, but it, it's between the fact again that it kind of takes a while to really take off in the spring and really can't reliably roller crimp um in ter- I don't know if you really can reliably roller crimp hairy vetch that thing it, it's it's just so spread out in terms yeah. of its flowering well, with dates that, with that rye there it's going to grow vertically too right yeah yeah, and it actually helps keep the hairy vetch down a little bit. Um, so having that, like you're saying, the, the hairy vetch grow up that rye, there, when you crimp the rye, it kind of holds the hairy vetch down. But it's really hard to get 100% termination of the hairy vetch, which isn't necessarily a bad thing with respect to, I think, competition necessarily, but the hairy vetch is going to... 
in some circumstances can become quite a problematic weed. Um, So that's, that's an issue. But what I've seen in the the few circumstances where I've had um, peas work and have actually measured the soil moisture um, under different cereal grains like rye and triticale versus uh, hairy vetch legumes. And I I don't think necessarily alfalfa might fall into this category, but certain legumes have almost a hydraulic effect with respect to pulling soil moisture up. So yeah, so the the cereal rye is just so, so hard on the um, soil moisture profile that if you have dry conditions going into planting, um, like, like you're experiencing this year, it can create a pretty high risk system. So if we could get a system that we're not using a living mulch like clover or alfalfa, but something that we could terminate um, ideally mechanically is, are there, should we be thinking about organic herbicides? There's a lot of different both practicalities as well as philosophical thoughts on whether we should be going down the road of thinking of organic herbicides in these systems. Um, but we just like, like you're saying, Rick, we just don't have the right cover crop species right now to make these, these work. Um, and there's breeding efforts, but there, we're just not there yet. So let me, okay, let's go back. Okay, let's, first of all, how many pounds of cereal are are you planting in the fall into a field that's going to be corn next spring? We are planting, and we haven't done side-by-side trials to really try to optimize this. I think, boy, I want to say we varied probably between about 50 and 75. Five. So about a bushel, I mean, okay. in the ballpark of a bushel, I would this say. This is a seven and a half inch spacing drill, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then you, you drill the rye and then, I mean. We I'm, always drill it with a leg. We always drill it with Harry. We've always drilled it with well, Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, you got, you got Harry Vetch in there with it, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, and again, I know every year's different. So sometimes you get some of these things done and sometimes you don't. Would you like to make a strip till pass in the fall then? Boy, that's something that we haven't tried. The only time that we strip till has been into these living covers. We haven't tried to strip till into, yes. We haven't tried to do strip tillage into a roller crimped crop um, and and more focus. We've done that with vegetable crops, actually, though, for some of the same challenges that we've um, just been talking about with corn in terms of um, competition and nutrient release. So, um, but what we've done there, um, and this is, you know, probably some folks have read about doing roller crimp systems with pumpkins. Um, So we've, we've, uh, we've managed the strips in the spring. So, you know, before the rye gets too big, we've come in and done some strip tillage um, and then planted vegetables into that. And it definitely, that definitely helps. Um, It helps with this this competition effect. The question there, so with vegetables though, what we were doing is going in and, either laying plastic or hand applying mulch. So I mean, the, I think the, the challenge is potentially, which I, I think, again, I think these are challenges we can think through. How are we going to do the 
um, in row weed management without the rye or the vetch either you know wrapping around our rotary hose or is there a way through flame weeders or other tools to keep that in row management yeah. um, effective well that okay i want to go back i got so many questions on this i want to go <laughs> back now do you okay um how do i want to ask this okay do okay we know the rye has a high carbon to nitrogen ratio. We know that. Mm -hmm. And you're gonna plant corn into this environment. Now, do you use an offset then because that legume is with it? So instead of it being 70 to one, is it now 40 to one? Or, oh, I mean, boy. do you look at it that way? We or haven't. Is, um... is that even the correct way to look at it? Are those two, do those two offset each other? Yeah, I, I think in terms of, which is an experiment we haven't done yet, which, you know, as we're talking, I think perhaps we, we should, and we, we have looked at in our long-term cropping systems trial where we've, we've, and with the, taking into, out of the picture, even, um, the, the factor of having these high biomass cover crops and just looked at the, the nitrogen availability in the systems right. of conventional systems versus organic and it does differ um and i i think that is going to be really kind of our our big challenge is understanding how you know how to think of the um optimizing the CETA and ratios or how to again apply supplemental nitrogen to yeah um because even even with a lower c to n ratio it still could impact you know when that nitrogen is available to the 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 corn crop and i'm not sure if we have a handle on and you're and Aaron, what you're talking about now is biology right you're referring yes. to the carbon nitrogen ratio affecting the way the biology is making that nitrogen available exactly yes yeah. Yeah, See, and I think that's a whole PhD topic or yeah. whatever. <laughs> there are several PhDs, yeah. 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 Yep. But that is where we are, I think, in this because, you know, you live in a, what I call a northern state. It is a northern state. It's cold. You get your season short. I mean, you have to get creative on when you're going to get these cover crops planted. And typically, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but you're going to be following a cereal grain that you're not double cropping soybeans into. And mm -hmm. now you're trying to get that timing set up following that cereal grain to get this legume package in place for your corn for next, next spring. Is that, is that kind of right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, Lita, Lorano or Lorano, I'm sorry, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Have you tried roller crimping a cover crop ahead of sunflowers? You know, we haven't done that yet. This is actually the first year that we're growing sunflowers because you know, from, from what we've been hearing, the sunflowers are are definitely an opportunity for our organic grain farmers. Um, it, it hasn't been a crop that's been widely grown in Wisconsin as compared to the, the Dakotas, but there's definitely um, there's definitely opportunity there. 
But from from what I've I, I've heard of a mixed bag in terms of experiences with roller crimping cover crops ahead of, of sunflowers. I've I've heard potentially of issues with using cereal rye as a rolled crimp cover crop. And this is not personal experience, so just sharing what I've been hearing from others and, and perhaps um, you know, sunflowers are more sensitive to whether it's the allelopathy of rye or some other factor. But then I've, I've also heard of people having success. So I, I, I think that is an area where we need more information. I'd definitely be interested in hearing people's experiences, but we, we, haven't, we haven't done it, but I would just proceed with caution um, if you were to try it, given the fact that it seems like results have been variable. Yeah, I've not, I, I can't help the reader. We've not planted, other than in a cocktail, we have not grown sunflowers for a cash crop. So mm -hmm. sorry, I can't, I can't help there. Um, Kenton, uh, I think Kenton is making a comment, I, I think. So let's see. Do you have the right crop rotation system in place? I am trying to follow short season crops like peas with cover crops and then to long season crops like sugar beets or corn and back to a short season or winter cover. So I think he's explaining what he's doing, but I he does have a question or do you have the right crop rotation system in place? So what do you think about that? You definitely need to, and I think this is where really kind of thinking outside the box with crops and markets is key. And we're having a, if, if folks are interested, the end of July, um, we're getting ready to give more details on this. We're having a, a field day at the Hughes Farm in Janesville, Wisconsin, and they grow an incredible number of different crops. Um, they grow specialty corn for corn chips. They actually grow processing vegetables for Seneca. They grow um, oh gosh, I mean, they grow different cereal grains. They um, grow barley for cat litter of all things. And they, they, they really have done a, an incredible job thinking outside the box. And I do think that a lot of the value of that is, is just what you're describing is, is having those short and those long season crops and those different windows that are going to allow for these, these different opportunities for cover cropping, which is absolutely essential for roller crimping because you need those short shorter crops to be able to plant the roller crimped crops early enough. But I think just in general with diversifying our cro uh, cover crop systems and, and optimizing our soil biology through that diversity, we need these windows where we can fit in different species um, and have them accumulate biomass and root growth. So, um, you know, what is that right system? Um, it, but it does, our sequence for our roller crimp crops is definitely different than what I would consider kind of the gold standard, you know, rotation or sequence in, um, in Wisconsin, which is typically, I would say, uh, you know, an organic system would be corn, um, followed by soybeans, probably followed by, um, you know, a, a cereal grain perhaps. And, you know, if you get your soybeans off early enough, maybe you could plant a winter cereal grain, but that might be an oat. And then maybe planting an alfalfa crop after that. So it's a pretty standard sequence, but we've really had to mix up how we're sequencing it so we can get rye in early enough and then do this, this frost seeding of, um, clovers or be able to get our hairy vetch in early enough. So it's, it's, it's made us, our, our crop sequence is, is really, it's driven by our cover crops, honestly. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And and Aaron, when you start to move this out to scale, and you get a field that you that falls behind, it's almost impossible to get this field back in unless you do a, what I call a regen year, mm -hmm. or you do this this another cereal grain year. Yep. You cannot, and I know this is so hard because I know there's a lot of, especially south of me. Now, mm -hmm. not so much up toward your way, but double crop beans are golden. I mean, people can make 80, huh. 90 bushel wheat and still raise 60 bushel beans. Hmm. So how, why would you not do that? I understand the economics of it, mm -hmm. but if just remember now, the longer you drive that cash crop into the fall, the less chance you have of getting a cover crop established. Yep, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've got to be careful there. Uh, Chris, Chris Grimm, how you doing, Chris? Uh, when roller crimping cereal rye, can you have too much biomass to successfully terminate the rye? And is what is the best planting rate for that rye? Um, gosh, that's a great question. You know, in too much biomass, I, I can't say. The one time I would say that we it maybe seems like we have too much biomass is when we're crimping in the same direction that we've planted the rye and we're planting we're crimping in the direction that we've planted the rye rows and that does not seem to that does seem to kind of create this this buffer that we don't get that snapping of the the stem and i would say that we see more problems than ideally you'd want to, if you're planting your cereal rye in like a north-south direction, come in and crimp east-west. And I, in that, in planting on seven and a half inch rows, I haven't seen it. We've gotten some pretty high levels of, of biomass. Um, the best planting rate, and that's still something that I think, again, we need some more regional specificity. And yeah even with respect to soil fertility and how it relates to tillering a lot of the success of this of the system is is related to the amount of tillering we get and that's why we really want to push that earlier planting date you know, so we're planting probably at about you know 150 pounds per acre so that's about three bushel an acre yeah. but i know um my colleague joel groover who does amazing work with organic no-till and organic in general at western illinois university so probably you know closer to your environment rick he yeah. he goes quite a bit lower on his seeding rate probably closer to two bushels an acre and and finds that works better um, so I, I think it that's again going to be something that um, is is a is potentially going to vary from system to system, and depending on you know, whether or not the soil fertility might impact the degree of tillering, could make make a, some adjustment in terms of optimal seeding rate as well. Yeah, I want to I want to throw a, a stab at this one too, if you don't mind. Um, when we started doing this a long time ago we started with like 40 pounds of rye then you go to 50 and it's you know and you just start moving up well last fall the fall of 21 we started at the first fields we started early in the fall we we started at 135 pounds 
And when we got done, we were at 150 pounds. And I'm going to tell you, Aaron, I think for where I'm at, I think we've overdone it. I, I, I don't okay. think, I think the density of the plant is so great that we've reduced the amount of tillering of the plants that are oh, there. Oh, okay. Huh. And, and, and I'm telling you, we usually have, I mean, this year has been so messed up for us and it still is. We usually have 10 to 12,000 pounds of biomass that we're going to, we could potentially roll down with the roller mm -hmm. crimper. This year, we probably had two, two to 3,000 pounds. That's all we had. Hmm. You could see through the cereal rye from any direction. So we didn't roll anything here. We've let it all stand. Hmm. Now, but I think I shot myself in the foot a little bit because of, of seeding 150 pounds per acre. All we have are stems out there. We had no leaves. We had nothing. So I'm going to back off and I'm going back to that hundred area, maybe 110. Yeah. We're going to stay there. Now I'm West central Indiana and Aaron is clear up uh, Madison and probably more North, right? Mm -hmm. than, than South. Yeah. And then what you're talking is in line of what I think Joel's observations have been, which again is probably much closer to your latitude than He's obviously what we right, are. So right west yeah. of me. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, honestly, uh, Chris, when you, when you get the rye like you want it to be and you start rolling, it's like a wave. I mean, it, it just, it rolls the best, the more density you have. And then when you hit a thin spot in the field, it's like it all stand, wants to stand right back up. So. I think it's a combination of what Aaron and I both have been describing here. And then I think it goes back to context. What I, I'm not sure where you're from. Maybe you could, maybe you could mention in the chat there where you're from, but um, it looks like we're going to want to be in that 100 to 150 pound range. Well, Joel's down. Would you say Joel's in the 60, 70 pound range? He, I thought he was about at 120 as well. Oh, I don't want to speak okay. for him, but maybe like what you're saying, like what you're thinking of dialing back to, I think is in line of what he was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's amazing though, Aaron, when Chris is in central uh, Iowa. So, um, you're 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 north of you're in between both of us as far as uh, geography is concerned. Um, what was I going here? Um, the okay, so let's go back to this corn program. So, are you always planting cereal rye where your corn is going to be? Always. We haven't in the past. We we have done it with just hairy vetch in the past. So I in, in the recent years, we've always been adding a little bit of cereal rye. I'm not confident that's necessarily the way to to go. Um, there's I wish that there was more fields we could play with, and that there was more than just one one shot a year to do all this stuff. Yeah. Um, but it, it's I, a lot of that's again was driven by some of the the management of of hairy vetch and that you know slower um, growth in the the spring. Well, I think it's okay, and and you know I guess I'll, I guess the way I'm looking at this carbon to nitrogen ratio thing and and trying to decide if 
rise at say 60 to one at, at, the, at its particular growth stage. And that vetch is, is, I don't know, 15 to one, I don't know, whatever, 12 to one probably. Mm-hmm. And is it kind of like diabetics when you look at, at carbs and protein, they offset each other. So if you had 10 grams of protein and you had 20 grams of carbs, it's net 10. See, that's how, that's how the food is, is labeled now. It's net 10 because mm-hmm. you're getting the benefit of the protein being there. So I, it's got to work the same way, I would think. So as we can load these cocktails up and, and keep bringing those lower carbon to nitrogen ratio species in, we can then pump more of the cereal rye into that system is what I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes that, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, because there's too many times where we have no other choice but cereal rye. And then sometimes, Aaron, we've not done our 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 legume until frost seeding it mm-hmm. in February or March. And I'm sure you've had to do the same thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and when you get to a frost seeding situation, what I usually see is you get way more vegetative growth and not so much root growth. Is that what you see also? Yep, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then that's going to, that's going to, you know, eliminate or not eliminate, but it's going to reduce the amount of nutrients that you're hoping to, to take out of that legume then. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think what is the air we breathe is 78% nitrogen. And I think that the numbers I've read and correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't it about 14,000 pounds of nitrogen above every acre of field? Isn't that what's available? I have not heard that, that, um, it's some outrageous number. Yeah. That's how much is there. Mm-hmm. If we could just get it into the, the ground so that it can be converted to a state that that corn plant needs mm-hmm. and, and it's gotta happen sooner uh, than what we're doing, Aaron. Exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. When, when I think back, Aaron, to, to when we were, we were still, we were all no-till, we were all cover crop, but we were still using a little bit of chemistry. Mm-hmm. And when you terminated those massive legume packages that we used to be able to grow with 10, 12 ounces of Roundup, that's it. Mm-hmm. the release from that was so instant to that corn because it was a quick termination. Mm-hmm. We can't do that when we do this mechanically. Exactly. Yep. That's a very definitely, definitely a observation, good observation of what we're seeing. Yeah. And, and then we've got to figure out how are we going to bring nitrogen forward? So exactly when, you, when you're in that situation, what are you doing then? What are you bringing? What, what product are you bringing forward? And that's, that's where we're struggling. Um, so we've tried several different products, a pelletized poultry manure. I know there's again, another debate within the organic community of, you know, the role of Chilean nitrate, um, yep. And then even from a certification standpoint, but that certainly does behave more like a synthetic nitrogen. Um, if we're trying to get more of that immediate availability, um, and, uh, feather meal is another one. So we've tried, you know, various, um, 
organically approved end sources to side dress and we we just haven't we haven't seen the response that we're wanting to see and that's where this year just to see is it the organic source that is the problem or is it is it we're so we're trying a higher rate of synthetic nitrogen into these roller crimp systems so not as an option obviously for organic but just to understand more of uh you know what what is the impact of this right. degree of nitrogen tie-up? So we'll be excited to be able to share that back um, at the end of this season. But yeah, we've we've tried every source that that we've been able to, um, you know, think that we'd be able to um, get a, a, the adequate supply of nitrogen, and we've been able to run through our planter. We haven't tried um, biologicals, honestly. No. Um, we we did um try to do that this year with with sunflowers but that um had a bit of a struggle trying to get that applied um i'm a bit um skeptical i guess that that's that's going to be enough um, of a boost to overcome the degree of of right. asynchronicity i guess in terms of nitrogen i hate to say it's I think the system, like you're saying, Rick, I mean, the, the system, I don't think is necessarily deficient in nitrogen. No. It's just, it's not available to the corn crop when the corn crop needs it. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of nitrogen being tied up there <laughs> in oh, the yeah. legume, in the, the cereal rye, um, but we, we need to get this system to work in more synchronicity. But and see what you're saying, I mean, what you're preaching here is so critical that we're I think we've kind of lost a little bit of focus here on is you said it many times now the, the nutrients have to be there when the plant needs those nutrients. Mm -hmm. That's what's critical here. And yep. now I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, you said chicken litter. So let's talk this through. Okay, how did you apply it? And what what were you seeing then? You didn't like what the litter was doing. It didn't move the nitrogen forward like you wanted to. Yeah, we just didn't see the yield response we were hoping to. And we were we were applying it um, in a two by two at planting, and we just we didn't see any you difference. You just ran a T band out the back of your planter. Yep. Holy cow! Yeah. <laughs> so you had it right there. Yep, we did. And it was still not seeing, but you know, there's, there's only so much product we can apply. And with the lower, um, you know, percent N in that product, you know, whether it was that or whether it still was something with the biology, not making that N available. Um, and that's why, again, we're, we're fooling around with this synthetic nitrogen too. There's just so much about the biology too, that, um, trying to understand how to optimize biology and how that's going to vary from system to system yeah we've got we've got some questions here piling up but i want to go somewhere here before i lose this thought um aaron do you know is there anyone and i'm sure there is and maybe maybe nicole masters is doing some of this i'm not sure but is there anyone that you know that is saying okay we we understand that total tillage is mass destruction. Hi there. Yeah, my dog just flopped down in my lap. <laughs> <laughs> we we know that we understand that that full tillage year after year after year is mass destruction. We understand that. We understand that that full chemical packages are no good either. But is there somebody saying, now look, you know, that's not right, but 
the way Rick's trying to do it and some other people, it's almost impossible. So can we come somewhere in the middle and say, you know what, this amount of tillage is okay. This amount of chemistry is okay. We're still being regenerative. We're still building biology. Is that type of work being done somewhere? Um, I, I think there's pieces of it that are being done. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if there's a, a more of a comprehensive experiment that's really looking at more of a systems-based that, that really goes to this next level of regenerative and regenerative right. organic that, that you're doing, Rick. Um, it would be great to, to set something like that up. I mean, I, I, I really do think that what you're saying that there is some, some optimization of, of middle ground that, yeah, yeah, that that there are using the right tools, using them smartly, using them at the right time. It doesn't have to, we, we don't necessarily have to remove, remove tools, but we have to be really smart, um, on what we're using and how we're, we're using them. Um, and the, how frequently we're using them. And we, we ideally don't wanna be, not only do we wanna think about like, your, like you just described tillage depth and the tools we're using and how that interfaces with cover crops, with the frequency that we're using it. Are we doing it every year? Are we doing it every other year? But I, I, I think that there's, there's gonna be these um, intermediate systems that I think are going to emerge as um, you know, where, where we need to go. And it's, it's a process of continued improvement. I mean, the, the systems, the intermediate systems that we use now might not be what we use 10 years from now if we continue to move forward with crop breeding and um, new, new technologies, new products, understanding you know, what, what do we need to optimize our soil biology? Are there inputs there we can use? Um, but I'm optimistic that there is, there's just so many great people working on this that we're, we're going to I think that like even the way um, that you're showing how we can farm is different than what I think you were doing 10 years ago, 10 years from now, we're going to be doing something different. So I, I just, you know, I would love to have, I mean, Aaron, I'm trying to do epigenetics here. We've gone back 35 years. We've got soybeans now that we've grown out twice. We finally had enough. Of a, of a amount of beans this year to plant. We planted 40 acres of five different varieties. The, genet- the genetics are 35 years old. Off patent, free, uh, free will to anybody who wants to take do it. So that's what I'm headed toward on the soybeans, trying to find that bean that can adapt to our system. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk to a corn plant breeder that could give us 120 bushel corn that would always grow in the environment we want to put it in. Yeah, and if you know, it's not all about about that yield number. If we can look at, you know, getting 120 bushels an acre and having that be consistent across weather events and not having to be adding that nitrogen and paying for that nitrogen and the passes across the field to apply that nitrogen, it's going to be a win-win. Way ahead. You're building human health, you're building soil health, you're doing all the right things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know this for a fact, but it sure feels to me like these corn hybrids are losing their association with the mycorrhizal fungi. 
Absolutely. They absolutely are. And that, we haven't done it with corn, but we, we've, we were funded by the USDA organic program to look at that with carrots as a model system. Ah. And, you know, we did find that um, just like what we were just talking about, that the more modern hybrids did not um, associate to the same degree with arbuscule mycorrhizal fungi. No. And the highs were higher. I mean, so when we look at absolute yield, um, you know, the, the yield of modern hybrids are higher, but the lows are also lower. So it, it goes to this, you know, just regenerative and resilient, um, that if we can get a system where we are able to consistently, um, have these associations with soil biology, uh, and, and have these more efficient, um, ability to, um, be able to capture soil nutrients, it's, it's going to be more stable. Will we be able to get the 300, 400 bushel an acre, um, corn? Maybe not, <laughs> but care. it's going to be a system that's going to be more resilient and sustainable, um, and consistent in the long run. Right. Well, let's get to a couple questions here. Um, Ed, Ed Bourgeois, Ed's on every, every time. Ed, how you doing tonight? Um, how does increasing the synthetic N restrict rhizosheath development for organic N production later on? That's a great question. Yeah, I don't know if I know the answer I, to I that I can't one. answer that one. Oh, I think I need my soil biology colleagues <laughs> on to... Uh... I, I will say, though, this is a I was actually out in the field earlier um, this week planting carrots for a new experiment where um, we were looking, we're using carrots as a model system a lot with our soil biology work for a variety of reasons. But what we were, um, the, the, the goal of the experiment was to look at, um, we have a new soil uh, biologist at UW that um, is, is looking at this, but he's gonna actually measure the, um, in the graduate student of his, the chemicals that are being exuded by the roots of the different carrot genotypes and seeing how that's affecting the um, rise of biome and the, the, the biology right around that um, soil, that, that the, the root system of the carrots. So I, I, there is some really cool work that's going on to try to understand, you know, what plants are doing uh, because plants that they, they are um, active participants in shaping their environment. And the amount of, you know, carbon um, and potentially other compounds that are coming through the root system that help shape that soil microbiome. Um, again, we're at the tip of the iceberg of understanding that, but we do know that plants um, exude an incredible amount of carbon back into the soil. I think I, you know, I've seen numbers as high as 30% of the carbon that's, that's fixed, actually the plants return back into the soil. And the, you know, not to anthropomorphize plants, but evolutionarily, they wouldn't be doing that if there wasn't a reason for them to be doing right. that, if there wasn't a benefit. And the benefit is that they're impacting the community cool. around them in a positive way that benefits them. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it likely is, you know, the, the, the biology then, you know, whether it's disease suppression or whether it's nutrient cycling that then benefits the plant. Um, but, you know, it's an incredibly complex ecosystem that I think, you know, we were 
pretty naive in terms of um, you're really ignoring how our, our management and our crop breeding um, was affecting that. Yeah. Well, Ed, that's a great question. I want you to, to write that question down, Ed. We're going to have Dr. Rick Haney on in three or four weeks, and I want you to ask him that question also. Now, I'm going to take a stab at it. Um, I'm going to say that increasing synthetic in greatly reduce, re restricts or reduces that rhizal sheath development because that's what's going on. The plant is becoming dependent upon that synthetic fertilizer. And so now it's not, it's not gonna go out and try and be, find that organic source that's available. And even if it did find it, it probably can't take it up anyway. So I think it's, it's doing great harm. But I, I still think though, I still think there's gotta be some research done that says, you know what? 120 pounds of synthetic N is harmful, but 40 pounds of synthetic N is probably okay. You know, whatever that number might be, I think it's out there somewhere. And it's so important to get this to the front side of this corn development because that's when it needs the most help is to, that, that first 30 days of life is when it really needs this help. Mm -hmm. um, Let's see here. Uh, I hope it's Kenton. I, I can't get, it's, all I see is K-E-N-T-O. Uh, can you get plants to deliver the nitrogen you are looking for? I am experimenting with putting peas with the corn. Yes, that's a great, great idea. What do you, what do you think, Aaron? I think that struggle is still this, this critical point that you just said, Rick, of, of having um, the plants deliver it in that time frame yeah um because it, even with peas and i think this is why we see um uh you know when we, we see soybeans in these roller crimp systems i often tell people and myself like I, I don't even like to look at the field for the first you know six to eight weeks or so because the the, the beans look so um they, they they just look so pathetic <laughs> it's hard to believe you're going to get a good yield and legumes um it takes them a while to have that nitrogen um, fixation really kick in that that relationship with the rhizobium bacteria um, and and they're actively growing at that time so they're themselves utilizing a lot of that nitrogen I, I don't think it's till later in the season where we're going to see a lot of that benefit of that nitrogen um, becoming more available either sloughing off or, or having some of that that turnover so I, I think the the um, the, the issue is, is still the synchronicity, synchronicity issue um, of what legumes, because the, again, the legumes are actively growing and actively utilizing that nitrogen. And that nitrogen is in the system. It's just not available when we need it. Right. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure if I can see that happening now. I mean, could we could it happen? And one of the crops that we have tried to experiment with, but we've struggled with, for instance, is crimson clover. And this is two where there's a lot of regional differences. Like, could we, um, a crimson clover, what we were hoping it would do would be that it would be roller crimpable, that it would survive the winter, but it would be able to crimp it and terminate it. And then once that crop is terminated, then that 
that that nitrogen should start becoming available. But Rick, like you said, we just don't have the right species that we're able to to manage it like like this. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Aaron, the one the one clover that really intrigued me, but I could not get it to survive the winter is uh, what is it called? Mammoth clover. Oh, huh. Okay. It's a single cut. It's a single cut. So huh. if you can get this to survive, it'll mm -hmm. come up in the spring. It'll get, you know, whatever, uh, 18 inches tall. You hmm. go in and you mow it with a flail chopper or something at, at four inches tall. Mm -hmm. And that's all. It won't regrow. So now you've got this low lying legume that's still alive, but it's not growing up to compete with that corn. But I could never get it to survive the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And I mean, then, the other challenge is, you know, too, like our, how, how that soil biology, how active our soil biology is at right. that time where it's still, you know, the soil biology is still revving up. Um, God, it's just such a complex oh. ecosystem, but I, 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 we'll I think there's, we'll never understand it. <laughs> no, it's, 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 uh, it's fascinating to, to be an observer of it and to, um, yeah. to be trying to you know, work with it, but it's, yeah, we're, it's, yeah, it's just such an incredible, it's incredibly complex, fascinating world we live in. Yeah. I mean, you know, I got some Haney tests, but I still do Haney testing every year and, and Aaron, some of my PLFA, and I went ahead and did did the PLFA on on these same samples. I mean, they were five thousand plus. Hmm. I mean, the the, the biology is there. Yeah. We, we, it, it, but but that's still not enough because yeah. you know I'm going into a question here. Um, Rick, did your corn do better during the dry hot spell when it had oats? My gunslinger mix rolled ahead of it compared to the alfalfa that's a great question and i apologize i, I hope it's uh, lita l-i-d-a i hope that's lita uh lita that's a great question and yes the corn will handle that gunslinger mix better than it will that perennial alfalfa alfalfa is just it's just ah, it, it will not give up mm -hmm. but but when you are dealing with a, a legume that's an annual like a balanza or a, a hairy vetch you have much better chances of terminating that which will then be less hindrance on the corn now i want to go back Aaron, just a little bit way back to the beginning i asked you about setting that vertical tillage tool right down and maybe not even move one bit of dirt all we're doing is rusting on top of that now here's why i want to i want to throw something out here we okay we've got fields now that are heading into nine years of the combination of no tillage and no chemistry nine years now so you can imagine what we've got growing in some of these fields i mean We've got certain weeds growing. We've got an armor on the soil. I mean, it there's, and when you go in the fall, it's a brown armor that's two inches deep across the whole field, mm. okay? Now we've got clover growing in, in almost all of our fields now because of the way we manage clover by letting it go all the way to maturity and then trying to terminate it mechanically. You know it's making seed, you know it is. 
Yeah. Okay. I pull into a field that we're going to plant soybeans into with our seven and a half inch spacing air seeder. The, the clover is at full bloom that I'm getting ready to plant these beans into. And when I came back two weeks later, that rye, or I'm sorry, that clover was dead, brown, terminated. Hmm. So you see that slicing effect yeah. is all we had to do to cut those stems up into pieces. Hmm. So that got me thinking about why don't we try to set some kind of a low disturbance tillage right on top of this biomass and just slice it into pieces. Hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. It's just things you think about. Yeah, I, I, I think that there is a lot of options that we just have to continue to explore and understand where these different tools fit at different times. And even on a given farm, um, you know, what are the, the options and create some sort of decision trees to, to kind of guide, you know, what are the best options for that circumstances? Um, that degree of residue or the weed populations in the field, or it's, it's um, right. I, I, I'm confident that, that these systems are there, but gosh, they're, they're, they're a challenge to, to figure out. It's a, it's a lot of persistence um, and determination <laughs> um, and ability to um, accept a certain degree of, of, of risk. Well, um, financial, it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of financial risk here. Um, I think it's Claudia, and I'm not, I'm, I'm going to read, read, I've read it, tried to read this a couple of times. Do you think her non-organic farm trials could try what Khan was talking to you about with the foliar? I, I'm not sure if she means John Kempf, maybe. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who Khan is, but so, Aaron, do you think your non-organic farm trials could try with foliars? Maybe, maybe I think. Uh, okay, I, so I, you know, one of the which I, I, I'm intrigued with some of the products I've been hearing about that um, not so much foliar feeds necessarily. Which again, I'm, I'm skeptical that they're going to be able to deliver the amount of nitrogen but may maybe it's two layering on tools and it's not one tool I, I think in these systems you're never going to have one silver bullet and could no. foliars be work with other strategies but you know one product that i've been curious to try on some of our fields especially with some of these systems is are these systems that it's not fully with respect to trying to apply um, nutrients directly as a foliar feed, but these uh, like free living nitrogen fixing bacteria that are applied as a foliar, like um, the blue end product that was available. And I, I think it may not be available right now, but are there um, technologies like that, that are, you know, further furthering our ability to capture that 70% N in the atmosphere that you were just describing, Rick. I mean, there, yeah. there's the plants are surrounded by nitrogen. It's just not in a form that they can capture, but are there other 
other technologies, other strategies um, beyond legumes and rhizobium bacteria that we can um, that we can look at at utilizing and integrating into these systems. Right. And, and I apologize, it, it, Claudia, it's a Zoom call I had yesterday and the gentleman's name was Khan. I apologize, uh, AGN is the company. Huh. And they've got some foliar, they've got some foliar stuff. But I think what she was really getting down to, and you see, this is why, Aaron, you're, 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 you're good in that you don't have your whole farm certified organic and you've got areas that you can do these trials. See, I can't do these yeah. trials. So, and that's probably shame on me. I probably should have kept a field or two out just to do the testing. And then hopefully one day that company brings that product with an OMRI approval of certification mm -hmm. behind it, you know. Um, but I can't do a lot of this testing on, on a lot of this stuff. But I am with you though. I. I've been very stubborn. I think I'm a very stubborn person. Just ask my wife. She'll, she'll <laughs> tell you that for sure. But if if you are, are listening to what we're talking about tonight and you are, are tilling the soil and you are ready to make a change and move toward no-till uh, with cover crop, then, then the biologicals by all means should be used in my opinion because that is going to ramp up the biology quicker and get you further down the road sooner. I was so stubborn that I didn't want to use anything. And, and that probably cost me three or four years, Aaron, of getting the system rolling and, and really functioning at, at high peak performance. So again, it's context. Where are you in the world? What, what part in the are you on the curve of this regenerative model and what products may or may not may or may not help you? Because I mean, I might be arrogant in saying this, but I think I've got the biology out there. I just need to figure out to get certain sectors turned on that I haven't turned on yet. And honestly, I think, Aaron, the next thing we need to be looking at, and you need to get a grad student in on this one, <laughs> is hormones. I think we huh. need to be thinking about what hormones could we be adding to a cash crop or even a cover crop that then turn on different parts of that microbial biome that we haven't been able to turn on before. Hmm. And I that's mean, a, that's think a, about it. Yeah. Women have different hormone systems than men do. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I don't know. That's but just, there are some systems that they're not allowed in organic, um, but that are being researched by the USDA uh, Dairy Forage Research Center that are, are, like you're saying, they're using hormones to suppress and, and basically delay, just like you know, growth hormones promote growth in humans. They're 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 applying some hormones to suppress alfalfa growth so they're yeah. developing these interseeding systems but in, yeah, instead of using herbicides that's that's the strategy that they're they're taking is more of a hormonal growth regulator strategy sign me up, sign me up. <laughs> plant will no-till corn into alfalfa like we always do spray it with a hormone subdue it for four weeks maybe even turn it brown and that corn plant comes up and looks around and says life's good let's go here we go 
That's definitely another, just I, I think we have to continue to think outside the box and explore different options and yeah, don't, yeah. don't get, don't get too narrowly focused on, you know, this is the way we've always done it, or these are the tools available. Just you have to really be, be creative, like, like yeah. you're, like you're doing in yeah. so many different aspects of your management and strategizing forward. And Bruce Chris is giving us the info here, Aaron Corteva. Yeah, I didn't realize now, that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So they, but I'm not sure if that's, I know it was allowed in organic, whether or not the new formulation might have some inerts that knocked it out um, from being allowed in organic. I'll have to look that up. I appreciate that, um, yeah. that heads up. I wasn't aware that it was marketed under a different name now. Yeah, and, and, um, Lita, the she's got a Johnson Sue with the question mark. So I'm going to assume she's asking uh, your opinion of growing our own biology at home, so to speak. Um, oh yeah. Huh. We now have two Johnson Sue reactors going at our farm now. I've been wanting to do this for years. Finally got it going. Um, what do you think? What do you think? About I think that makes a ton of sense, and that's an area that I would love to explore more. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, just like each individual um, person, I mean, your microbiome is is different. Um, oh. That to me, it's it seems like if if you can do more on site development um, of composting and different ways to facilitate more context specific biology, um, I mean, ideally, that's the way to go. Um, yeah. Yeah. And what do you think about, Aaron, what do you think about keeping that that Johnson Sioux reactor to be built with products that are within your own environment, right? You know, right where you live, the leaves from your farm, the 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 straw or whatever it is you're picking up to put in that reactor. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I would be really curious to I mean, I, I hope that there is more. Uh, research that we can it's uh, start to 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 see you know what what are the um what are the uh the the benefits and, and differences of that but i i to me that it just intuitively makes a lot of of sense and yeah. that's where i've i've always been a bit not you know we've we've tried some limited experiments with um, soil inoculants. I mean, obviously there are, are some that, um, like, like rhizobium bacteria and inoculating your legumes, but sure. I mean, there, there's going to be certain factors in the environment, whether it be soil pH or, um, you know, different inherent factors in your environment that are going to sway the, the soil microbiome as a certain way. And if, if, if you're working, with microbes that are already adapted to that environment and enhancing what See, has um, already been optimized, it seems to make a lot of sense. Again, epigenetics, I totally agree. Uh, yep, yeah. Building, building within what's in your system currently. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the what's inherent in Indiana is not inherent in Texas. Exactly, so I mean, and there's some argument which I find kind of fascinating in some respects, I don't think we think of this with respect to soil, perhaps because, you know, we're not, not thinking, not thinking of soils and its complexity is, you know, we, we know that there can be issues with introducing, um, it, like foreign, um, 
biology right. to the system. I mean, we've tried those solutions and they become invasive species. Why don't we think that might happen in the soil? Um, so to, to work with the ecosystem that's already there, um, the, the, the soil biology is, it's, it's an ecosystem, it's biology, it's just biology that's harder for us to connect to because we can't see it. <laughs> but some of those same principles still, still that's exist. A great, that's a great thought. Maybe, maybe there's certain species in the cocktail packages we're putting out that are subduing some of those those regimes within that microbe and we're just accidentally uh turning them off because we're they don't like the exudates from that particular species or, or whatever they can i don't know i mean yeah and i i don't know if i've seen research that has specifically looked into that but i've i've certainly seen um in red papers that that definitely you know, point to that as something that we should be considering at least yeah. that um you know again yeah. we we have lessons of when we've introduced you know different what we thought might be um beneficial organisms to the system you know, whether it be you know, what we thought might be beneficial insects to control one problem ended up right. causing another problem so just right. not to be I, I guess overly confident in terms of our understanding of the system and what we we think we're doing um it's it's always more complex than than you know what what it might seem on the surface right um now, one other thing I want to ask you about, um, I want to ask you about uh, Eagle Heights Community Garden. Huh. And what did it, what did Eagle Heights turn into then? Um, well, it's, it's now our organic student yeah. farm, which is pretty awesome. And yeah. it's <laughs> so this started out as a community garden, right? Mm -hmm. And it's now grown into your re your organic research yeah and it's really our students which is so cool to see the next generation of people involved in agriculture you know really excited about um you know, working in um these alternative organic regenerative systems and you know being able to have a place to explore their passions and do some experiments and you know start to start to you know think outside the box and see things a little bit differently. Yeah. So so Aaron, how many students? I mean, I, I know you got budgets and all that. How many grad students? I assume they're all they're all trying to get their or most of them are trying to get uh, either a master's or a PhD. Is that correct? A, a lot of the students involved in the student farm are actually undergraduates, so oh. they're involved in a large, you know, a number of different majors across the college, anywhere from agronomy and horticulture to soil science to agribusiness. So um, we do have grad students involved as well that are doing awesome research in various areas of cover crops and soil health and soil biology and plant breeding. But a lot of a lot of the students that are involved in the organic student farm uh, aspect are undergraduates. Well, that's great. So how many students do you think you have, you know, 20 or 15? I mean, how many students are, do you have in the system? Oh gosh, um, you know, we, we just launched an organic certificate. Um, so it's really focused on understanding organic agriculture. Um, and we, we had- Wait, um, you, mean, you mean for like a regenerative, what do you mean by that, a certificate? 
Um, so it's, it's, it's basically at UW, a, what we could call a certificate is um, the equivalent to what other universities might call a minor. So it's oh, um, you know, a package okay. of different classes. Um, but, you know, the students, we had an event um, at the student farm and yeah, I mean, there had to have been at least 50 students there, oh, you know, awesome. all excited about yeah, getting their, their hands into the soil and um, growing food. And like, like your you say time and time again, you know, growing healthy, healthy food and yeah. really, you know, thinking of that nutritional density and um, creating you know, systems that are, are really helping to support healthy communities yeah well that's great um but you know and we we've been on for an hour and a half we could go for another hour and a half so <laughs> i'm going to respect your time um i want i want you to do I, there's just a couple more, just two more things what is working and what's not working yeah i mean i i and just keep it on corn and soybeans, if you yeah. will. I mean, there's the straight system of organic um, your cover crop based reduced tillage for soybeans definitely works um, I mean, to, to bring that into a system where we're trying to layer on a zero tillage system. That's where it gets tricky. But roller crimping cereal rye and planting soybeans that that can that can work um, that work everywhere. That can work everywhere, uh, but the systems with um, looking at how to how to minimize tillage and these living cover killed covers with with corn. Um, again, we we have success. I know you've had success. We've had some success, but there's risk there, and there's a lot we need to to learn. And I always tell folks if if they're thinking of doing this. You know, start small um, because you do you do have to be able to to, to be able to um, you know fold that risk in if something yeah. happens. Um, so there's I, I think you know we all we're all learning together and you know putting in a but don't go all in necessarily. Um, right. There's a learning curve for all of this, and again, there's. Um, the, between the learning curve and the the, the risk, it's, um, it's it's start small, experiment, and, and learn how to adapt. I and mean, that's something that Joel Groover has said time and time again. I consider Joel one of my mentors. Is that you know, or any of these principles? And I would say with regenerative ag as well, it, there's there's not necessarily a, a recommendation that's going to work everywhere. But it's it's learning from innovators like you and, and others and how to adapt on your farm, because <laughs> yeah. it's all about adaptation. And yeah. in these ecological systems, what works for one person is not necessarily going to work for another. And that's not to say that, you know, that the system isn't successful. It's just you need to you need to adapt and learn how it's going to work right. on your farm with your tools, with your soils, um, your, your resources. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Lita wanted to just say I share your caution about introducing invasive species of microorganisms, especially since one of the oldest soybean inoculants lingers in the soil and outcompetes the newer and more efficient. Uh, ones costing billions. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. So, huh. see, it's, it's there. 
and 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 folks Aaron and I have talked many times and maybe we can maybe we can do something but I've I've extended some acreage here for her to to have research because I, we've talked about tonight in, in this hour and a half week we came up with at least 10 things <laughs> that we could be researching yeah and honestly I think we've got to get deeper with the microscope and see what we're damaging and what's thriving mm -hmm. based on what we introduce into the system. So that, that's my thought. Um, so Aaron, take us home. Um, what, what are your closing comments? What, what do you want to leave everybody with? Uh, that, that will, I, I, again, I think the systems we see a decade from now with with the amazing work that farmers are doing and the new tools coming out, I, I feel incredibly confident that there's there's so much energy and, and truly a movement in the area of regenerative organic. And I think as, if we have this conversation a decade from now, we're going to be talking about com completely I mean, the same things, but our, our level of knowledge is going to be completely different. And I'm, I'm so excited to see where we're able to go. And there's going to be ups and downs and there's going to be challenges, but yeah. I'm incredibly optimistic of what the future is going to hold. Well, thank you, Aaron. I just the knowledge you have, you're so humble, the the expertise you have, I, I just please keep doing what you're doing. You're 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 changing this this industry. Um, we're absolutely honored that you would be on our show this evening. Thank you very much. And please safe travels for the oh, next few you. days. And we'll have to, I'd love to come back on and talk more. It's yeah, always, we, always so much fun to talk with you. Well, thank you. We will have you back on. Don't worry. <laughs> so Aaron, thank you so much and have a great evening and, and safe travels. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Have a great night, everybody. Bye. Bye, -bye.